down the Mississippi past St. Louis, right south to New Orleans. Down the bold, brawling Mississippi, a runaway boy and his staunch friend. Around every bend of the river, new adventure and excitement. Is Pittsburgh blue? From the pleasures of the glamorous riverboat to the terrors of a haunted houseboat. Pursued one moment by bloodhounds across the treacherous swamps, and the next, rubbing shoulders with royalty. Royalty? Hello, I'm Kirk Kernett. And I'm Scott Yarbrough. And welcome to episode nine of Great American Novel Podcast. And Scott, on this very special episode, what gan are we talking about today? Today's great American novel is maybe the greatest and Americanist of all great American novels in that it is Adventures or the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, depending which edition you're looking at. When we'll discuss that briefly. Kirk, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit of what the book's about? I think you're right to say this may be one of the, right up there with Moby Dick, is one of the archetypes of the great American novel. In that we have a story of a journey and a journey that deals with pressing political issues, socio-cultural issue of the time that in turn becomes a metaphor for the meaning of uh, egalitarian democracy and the moral education of a protagonist. Moreover, it's a very important book in that it establishes what will become really the kind of prototypical novel or vein of American protest fiction. That might not be the quite category we're looking at, but certainly the use of a child or a uh, tween narrator as a moral compass to measure where American society has gone wrong will be hugely influential. And later on, we'll talk about some of those specific books. But by any measure, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn establishes many of the characteristics of the great American novel that we will come to know. Plot-wise, it's fairly simple. It's a series or a sequence of adventures, many of them very violent, many of them very funny. A lot of them revolve around identity. There are scenes of transvestism at one point, adopting other characters' uh, identities. Uh, The end of the book comes about, Huck pretends he's Tom Sawyer even. So it's a lot about how we shape our identity, which is a hugely American theme as well. Starts off as a sequel to Tom Sawyer, right? and which Huck and Tom have uh, inherited about $6,000, and they are being um, rehabilitated in society. And through a series of adventures, at least the darkest part of which involves the return of uh, Huck's alcoholic father, abusive alcoholic father, Pap, Huck ends up on the Mississippi River. And he's there with the runaway slave, Jim. And they go through a sequence of encounters, some with thieves, lots of rapscallions. Uh, A huge part of the novel is devoted to their tagging along with two confidence men who call themselves the Duke and the Dauphine. And we end up in the South with Huck and Tom very controversially helping Jim escape from slavery. So in terms of plot, it can seem like just a uh, sort of almost random 
series of encounters. And that's why you will often see the word picaresque associated with the novel. However, there is one very important moment that critics look at uh, as a kind of hinge of Huck's moral development. And it's often taken as a statement of the individual standing up against the conformity of society. And that's when Huck resolves that he will help Jim escape from slavery and kind of reasons through why he's willing to go against man's law in the name of, of sort of instinctual humanism. And he says, all right, then I'll go to hell. Right. And that is often perceived as the battle cry of the American individual. So it is a um, iconic book, deeply saturated in American popular culture. There are to date almost 18 film versions, including a silent movie version feature uh, that was directed by probably the most famous murder victim in Hollywood history, William Desmond Taylor. And, you know, it's hard to think of anybody who had, even if they are not book readers, they have heard the name Huckleberry Finn. Right. And, you know, Kurt, I, I can't say that I've probably seen five or six of the movie adaptations. I can't say that I thought any of them came within spitting distance of getting it right. Right. Even when you think of famously bad adaptations of different novels, you know, the good example might be Snows of Kilimanjaro. That's way closer to Hemingway's story than any of the Twain adaptations have been. They always want to make Huck younger and more naive and sillier in some ways than he is in the book. Well, that speaks to a couple things. We're looking at a book that kind of is positioned on the border between being a young adult and an adult novel. And it reflects our sense of Huck as that in that ambiguous space between being a boy and being a teenager uh, who is on the way to being a man. I think personally, my favorite adaptation was the 1985 Broadway musical Big River, which I felt like captured at least some of the language of the novel. And that's really one of the huge innovations of the novel. This is often congratulated or celebrated as being the moment in American literary history where the American tradition embraced the vernacular and the idea of writing as people speak and not trying to speak in the King's English, like even Melville tried to do in Moby Dick. So lots of neat things to talk about with the novel, but I'll just throw it to you, Scott, and ask you to give us a little bit of background on Mark Twain, whose real name was Samuel Langhorn Clemens. So he's born 1835, and we always think of him as having a long elderly life, but he's really only 75 when he dies in 1910. He's raised in Hannibal, Missouri, but his father dies, or his father was a attorney, not of the kind of rich connected to everyone in society school of attorneys, but rather the small town attorney who does a little bit of everything for everyone. Uh, His father dies when he's 11 and the older two, he and his older brother have to start working to help support the family. And so he leaves school with the more or less equivalent of a fifth grade education. So Twain is part of that interesting long number of American great writers who have very limited educations. We could add Faulkner and Hemingway and a number of others to that list as well. Early on as a teenager, he starts, uh, he he spends some time working in print shops, but then he gets a job working on steamboats and fell absolutely in love with the Mississippi River and steamboat piloting, was very good at it, 
convinced his younger brother, Henry, to come and spend time with him. And then there was a boiler explosion and Henry is killed. And that totally wrecks Twain, uh, Sam Clemens, because he's so close to his brother and he can't stand to really keep working on the river with the ghost of his brother kind of haunting him. As everyone famously knows, it takes two fathoms or two six feet chunks of depth, 12 feet of depth for a steamboat to properly draw with his big paddle wheels. And so his pen name, Mark Twain, comes from a guy with a big depth finding pole jumping to the front of the boat and plunging it down at a river and seeing if they had at least 12 feet of clearance to the bottom for the steamboat uh, to, to properly draw enough water to move forward. And so he grew up in a very working class, poor family that slaves were all around because he's poor. His family didn't really have slaves. There's one older one was really owned by his uncle who lived with the family. Uh, most of they were not a slave owning family. And as the abolitionist sentiments heated up, they were not pro-slavery as such, although in no means were they political rebels or publishing, you know, screeds against slavery or anything like that. Uh, there were a lot of Southerners who were somewhat anti-slavery or pro-union, yet not really willing to do anything about the conviction of their, their beliefs. And until, and when the war breaks out, they still side with the South. And in fact, when the Civil War breaks out, although he's voting Republican, voting against succession and all those things, he still is coerced into joining a militia group for a brief while at the onset of the war. And he makes fun of this in an uh, essay he wrote years later. And he says, after a couple of weeks, it looked like they might have to someday get into a fight. And so they decide to break up and go join the official branches, by which he really means most of them deserted. And he certainly gets out of the, he lights out for the territory, just as Huck will do at the end of the eventual Huck Finn heads out to where his brother is working in the with the governor's office of Nevada, uh, Republican governor's office of Nevada. And again, at this point, when we say Republican, what we really mean is largely pro-union, anti-slavery. It's a brand new party formed and in, in, in moved forward by Abraham Lincoln, and he's the first true Republican president of this sort. So pro-union, abolitionists. Uh, but he did not think the problems with slavery should have been resolved by war. And that doesn't really change. He's always anti-slavery, but not necessarily pro-Civil War. Gets involved in mining, finds it very difficult and hard, has a lot of escapades he later writes about and roughing it, and then starts turning to humorous writing. He starts doing this in newspapers, immediately gets a reputation and is able to move to better and better jobs, ending up in San Francisco. And he starts taking humor writing and adapting it as a form of stand-up comedian, which he called his lectures, and he would go and he adopted at this time his persona with the, eventually the linen suit and the string tie, pretending he's a Southern and well-bred Southern raconteur. Well, he's got two of the three, but he's not from the upper end of society as he kind of pretends to be in these. But, and it's all delivered exactly like his writing, kind of an ironic statement where you had to have a little bit of wit to get the joke and following through. So when he writes Adventures of Tom Sawyer, his earliest books are comedic books like Innocence Abroad making fun of how much people obsess over Europe and the Holy Land and or Roughing It, which is really a travel memoir and a story of kind of when he first headed out west. And then so when he writes Adventures of Tom Sawyer, he's got this wicked satirical turn of mind, and he hated adolescent lit because adolescent lit, if you think of the Horatio Alger school of adolescent lit, it's always about if you say your prayers, you go to school, you do a really good job, everything works out right for you. And Twain's point of view is, no, a lot of times it, it turns out horribly and the bad guys win. And 
So The Adventures of Tom Sawyer is completely a subversive kid's novel. It's about a kid if, who lies, skips school, gets other people to do his work, cheats, uh, runs around with uh, reprobates and homeless kids, and manages to somehow save the day and, as you said, get a uh, $6,000 reward for capturing a, a you know, rough man uh, bank robber and all this. And so it, it, it's subverting all these notions adolescent lit. And he never really lets go of that. Now, significantly, at some point, his wife's family is dying for him to move back east so they can be around the grandkids. So they help him by giving him property in Hartford, Connecticut. And they moved to Hartford, Connecticut, but he spends a good period each summer in Elmira, New York. And there he gets to know the former slave, Marianne Cord. Now he writes a couple of essays about this that are well worth your trouble. And in this, he says to her one day, you have such a good heart. You laugh so much. I guess you've never had any trouble in your life. And she looks at him and challenges him, says, what are you talking about? Now, let's give Twain credit. He's spending more time hanging out with the slave, former slave woman who's a cook in the kitchen because he enjoys her company than he does all the editors coming from New York to see him. And he can't stand really fans. He can't stand people coming to bother him. And he loves spending time with her. And she says, here's my life. And she tells him the story of how she separated from her children and what slavery did to her. And it's a very important moment. It's kind of an epiphany for Twain where he says, I grew up around slavery and all I didn't approve of it. I've never really thought about it. Never really thought about how I felt as a kid when I just went along with it. Never questioned it. And that's the genesis of the adventures Huckleberry Finn. Now, he doesn't crank it out immediately afterwards. It takes him over seven years to get published. And Kirk, he doesn't he, uh, during his time, he has to kind of resort to some other alternative methods and he funds it with a travel, uh, traveling around giving humorous lectures. Will you tell us about that for a minute? Well, it's interesting because I think Adventures is probably one of the most famous self-published books in American literature, too, which is interesting background of it. Uh, Twain was not happy in his relationships with various publishers. I think he'd had three. And so he set up his own firm, installed the husband of his niece, Charles Webster, as his agent, although he was really the power behind it. And they pre-sold subscriptions to the book as a way to fund it. And they enlisted the services of a uh, illustrator named D.W. Kimball, whose work is very important to that first edition and, and sort of centennial and commemorative editions mm. afterwards and how we, how we picture Huck as a boy. What age do we picture him at? So the novel was very successful in terms of, of generating money for the subscription. And you mentioned the the, the tour that he took uh, as a way to sort of generate interest, he took to the road with another writer, a Southern writer named George Washington Cable. It's always fascinating to think of writers as the rock stars of the 19th century because they did go out on tour. And if they were, if they were big enough, it was not much different than the Rolling Stones coming to your hometown. And it, it's like... Spring scene these days. Now the record industry is dead and they don't sell, make so much right. selling the albums. They make all their money on tour. And, and like Ralph Emerson, one of the most famous writers of the 19th century, made so much more money with lecture tours than he ever did with his writing. Yeah. As strange as it is for us to believe. Well, one of the interesting things about that tour was it went from November to February 
1884 to 1885, basically ended right as the novel was being published in the United States. And originally, Twain was kind of on what we might think of as the greatest hits tour. He would get up and read uh, the, the, the Jumping Frog of Calaveras County or one of, one of the yeah. pieces, humorous pieces for which he was known. But beginning in 1885, he always wrapped it up reading the latter section, the controversial section of Huckleberry Finn. And his opening act, who was uh, George Washington Cable, had just published an essay called The Freedman's Case in Equity, in which he as a Southerner came out and said Black people deserved equal rights. So it was an interesting tension where you open up with a very serious lecture about how in 20 years after the um, Emancipation Proclamation that America had failed to integrate Blacks into mainstream culture. And then you turn around and you have a, a kind of farcical scene in which two boys play pranks on this poor escaped slave who's been sold back down the river. And one of the boys, Tom, as it turns out, already knows that Jim has been declared legally free. So one of the issues we have to deal with with Huckleberry Finn is the question of the final fifth of it, which many critics um, feel like lets down the general stinging criticism of America in favor of uh, just uh, kind of silly boyhood right. pranks. A um, couple of other things you mentioned, though, I'm glad you brought up Springsteen, because I think when we talk about the relationship between Huck and Jim, one of the things that we really have to be very careful about is that sort of iconic image of the white hero with a black sidekick. And how many times have we seen that in movies, uh, cop movies, buddy movies, lethal weapon? I was always humored when I studied uh, popular music history to see the cover of Springsteen's Born to Run always described as a version of Huckleberry Finn, because you had uh, Springsteen there leaning against Clarence Clemens. Actually, Springsteen talks about this in his really very readable autobiography, Born to Run, sure. in which he says he was naive at the time and didn't really understand, even though Clarence tried to talk to him, how uncomfortable he was playing the role of the black sidekick. So we are going to address that controversy about the end when we get to it. And all I'll tell you is, Kirk, if only all those critics had taken my sophomore lit class, all would have been handled to their satisfaction. And we'll see if that ends up being true. After Avenged Huckleberry Finn, which is never the big hit initially, he wants it to be and is very controversial, as we'll address in just a minute when it first comes out. His career is very strong. In one sense, as a writer, he's beloved, he's famous, he publishes more than 25 books, he sells a lot of them, but he always had financial issues. He chooses over and over again the wrong people to invest with, including, of course, his relative who's managing his, his publishing company. He invests in one of the early prototypical typewriters, but he chooses the wrong model, which gets replaced by the one that everyone eventually will come to know. He over and over again, just does a bad job managing money. And he's also beset with just an awful series of family tragedies. You usually you think of someone with a large family who dies first or the oldest person, especially if he's male dies first. Twain outlived three of his four children and his wife. And he was very close to his family, he doted on his children. 
And it, it, it's just a hard way. And so it, sometimes people say, why is there this dark streak to the interior of Twain as he gets older? Why is there a, a cynicism and a kind of misanthropy? Uh, yeah, misanthropy, kind of a forlorn side to him. Well, you know, it, despite all his successes, it was, it was nobody's rose garden. It's interesting because the first, the 1885, the first year that Webster and Company, Twain's publishing company, they had they came out of the gate with with two very successful books, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and even more popular was the autobiography of Ulysses S. Grant. Right, and um, the story of how Twain and Webster cajoled Grant, who was dying of cancer, to write his autobiography is a fascinating tale all of itself. And just to think that that with the, those two iconic books. That he that t- that within ten years that firm would have to declare bankruptcy and and both still in print to this day and it created uh, a lot of animosity between Webster and and Twain. You bring up a lot of good issues, and I think maybe one of the ways to kind of get going here is to is to talk a little bit about the nature of comedy. I think there's a misperception about Twain. There's kind of the two Twain theory that goes along sometimes. People tend to think of him as a homespun satirist, the Hal Holbrook type of image. And who, who played Twain in a series of talks for many years and kind of a stand-up show. As did Val Kilmer, believe it or not. But I think one of the things to think about is that comedy is really infused with an element of tragedy and darkness. And there's a f- very famous study of Twain that came out in, in 1920 by Vanwick Brooks called The Ordeal of Mark Twain huh. that made the argument that Twain could never be honest with the general public, that his darkness and, and uh, his sort of anti-humanism, his, uh, his cynical view of human nature, that he had to quash it and play that part of the uh, sort of avuncular, grandfatherly uh, stand-up comedian in order to win a mass audience. And I think that overstrains the conflict between the artist and society a little bit in ways that we don't, you know, that we see as simplistic today. However, I will say that one of the, at the end of one of his performances on that cable tour where he would read one of the latter scenes of Huckleberry Finn kind of as a preview that brought the house down in laughter. He walked off the stage basically saying that he was uh, debasing himself, being out there just kind of slinging the jokes and, and being funny. So it raises a lot of interesting questions about the nature of comedy. And I think there's a quote. And the first thing I should tell you is I really dislike musicals. And the only time you'll ever hear me quote from a musical is if there is flying in it. So that means there's two musicals I particularly like. And that would be Mary Poppins and The Wizard of Oz. And because I have two daughters, I've seen both of them approximately 9,417 times. Not that anyone's counting. And as Mary Poppins says, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The basic premise of many of Twain's books from Huckleberry Finn forward, from Adventures Huckleberry Finn forward, is very, they're very didactic and they're preaching fairly obvious sentiments, such as uh, don't be a racist, don't be evil, don't take advantage of people, be kind and sharing. 
And uh, many people don't mind hearing those things in church or kindergarten, but as you get older, we often very much dislike things that are too broad in their application and are too preachy. And I've heard so many people go see a movie that's a statement against uh, it's pro-feminist or anti-racist, and they agree with everything they see in the film or hear from it, but they also complain at how preachy yeah. the story was. And so with Twain, he's always very often just when you think he's joking the most is when he's sliding you some information, such as when they're going to kick Huck out of the uh, Tom, Tom Sawyer's gang of robbers, you're going to kick him out because he, he doesn't have any family. Well, he says, well, you can murder Miss, Miss Watson. And they go, okay, Huck can join. He's got someone we can kill if he betrays the band secrets. And of course, the real point to that is that yeah. Huck is an orphan and he's got an alcoholic, abusive father who we read as you know, funny in the novel. And if, but if Huck's telling you the story on Oprah, there's not a dry eye in the house. You know, she's got, she's got everyone crying right, and reaching right. for the, the handkerchiefs and the tissues. You know, Kirk, when a book first comes out, it's banned in many places. It gets a lot of bad press because here we have a, and I am one of the people who dislikes the, the artwork because Jim's rendering is, a, is seems to be drawn by someone who's not been around black people much. It's got a little bit of kind of Sambo uh, stuff going on in it. If you think of that famous yeah. racist children's book from the 19th century. Um, it also has, and Hutt looks like he's nine or 10 years old, which is a frequent misconception. He's 13 and turns 14, a year older than he is, of course, in yeah. Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So it's banned because Hutt skips school, doesn't like school, doesn't get interested in the Bible because it turns out all the people in it's been dead a considerable long time and he don't take no stock in dead people. And he uh, will chew tobacco. He'll smoke tobacco and he hangs out with a runaway slave. And it also, there are reviews that say it implies that only slaves are moral, which is exactly, of course, Twain's point in the novel. Right. And so it's banned for those reasons. But of course, in the last 40 to 50 years, it has often been banned because of its frequent and we'll be as sensitive here as we can talking about this, but the frequent use of the N-word. Yes. The, the N-word appears 206 times by one count in the mm. book. Um, let's go back to the original controversy, though, because uh, listeners may not realize necessarily that the racial issue was really a smaller aspect of it up until, until the desegregation era. Originally, part of the reason that people reacted to it was because, as you say, it was uh, a book that seemed to promote juvenile delinquency. And we should note that Twain did not invent that genre. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, acquaintances with a writer named Thomas Bailey Aldrich, who published a very successful book in 1869, I think it was, called The Story of a Bad Boy. And that kicked off a genre kind of a subversive genre. Now, a lot of that bad boy stuff was very naive and benign, uh, lots of pranks. and But the, the, the basic premise was by the end of these adventures, the boys had been educated and it created, it helped create the idea that adolescence right. is a time of rebellion and sort of self-formation. But probably the most famous reception moment in the history of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn came in right after publication in March 1885, right. when the Concord Public Library declined to stock the book. And this is what they announced in the Boston transcript. 
The Concord Public Library Committee has decided to exclude Mark Twain's latest book from the library. <laughs> One member of the committee says that while it does not wish to call it immoral, he thinks it contains but little humor and that of a very coarse type. He regards it as the various trash. The librarian and the other members of the committee entertain similar views, characterizing it as rough, coarse, and inelegant, dealing with a series of experiences and not elevating, the whole book being more suited to the slums than to intelligent, respectable people. And, you know, Twain's basic argument was that he had based these characters he first claimed that he based them on two of his uncles who were very successful journalists. And then years later in his autobiography, he claimed that he based it on a friend in Hannibal, Missouri named Tom Blankenship. But you get the idea there of the nature of the event. People expected literature for children to be didactic, to teach a moral purpose, and to rehabilitate children. And that's one of the famous things about right. Huckleberry Finn is the ending. We do not have that entrance into adulthood that is demanded by the novel of development that we have looked at in other, other works. Right. Although I would argue it does all those things just in a way that no one in American society of the 1880s wanted to see. Yeah, um, It's because it doesn't worry about skipping uh, school, skipping church, and uh, drinking alcohol and smoking, it does worry about how you treat other human beings despite their differences. I think as we look at the use of the, the N-word is very complicated because we have a tendency to think it's always been perceived the way it is now. And it's something that evolves a lot over the course of the 19th century. It Up until the time of the Civil War is kind of Southern slang and it, the pejorative nature of it evolves depending on what region you're in. So at some point, it moves from being simply something people of a certain class use instead of the appropriate word, like an ain't or y'all, into pejorative language. And by Civil War, it's become pretty pejorative. Right. And so a little bit of complexity here is this novel set 1840s. The other question, of course, we always have is, there are ways to elegantly indicate realities and not use it as much as Twain does, because by his time, during Reconstruction, when the novel's published and he's writing it in the early days of Reconstruction, it, and it publishes as it ends, he knows full well that the, the word is going to not raise as many feathers as it should in the South and will raise some in the North. So uh, my question to you, Kirk, is... Can you realistically depict a time in history where there, a lot of bad stuff occurs without drawing out all the characters realistically? If we make Jim educated and heroic, if we make Huck not a racist, if we don't have the racist environment fully told? Well, you ask a great question. And one of the things I would invite listeners to do is to look at historical novels today and historical films and what tends to happen is the villains are the ones that use the N-word. The heroes, the people that we are supposed to sympathize with, are presented as being smart enough to know that that's a racial epithet. And that's just not historically accurate, but it reflects our discomfort with the word. Right. I think Twain, part of what he does here is because this is a novel in which our main character is not really intellectually developed enough. He's intuitively good and intuitively a humanist. 
but he's also a product of his society. Absolutely. And, and that's really the most important thing. Everyone has to understand that for the bulk of this novel, Huck is a product of that social environment. Probably the, the most controversial use of the N-word is when there's a steamship explosion and one of the ants asks Huck if, if anybody died in it. And he says, no, ma'am, just an N-word. Right. And that's, that's an example of sort of the idea that in, in that period of time that African-Americans were so dehumanized that people could use that word and not even see them as, as right. human beings or that their lives didn't count. And it's so complicated because we know that that's exactly how he kills that human in the book, exactly the way his beloved younger brother dies. So Twain's messing, you know, he's been working on levels people don't expect from him. Right. Uh, which is which is commonplace in American lit. If you seem to be doing something very obvious on the surface, people tend not, you read Moby Dick and you know, I got to dive deep here. This is about more than just a well. When you look at Poe, you don't necessarily do that. Although in his best stuff, you really do. And you look at Twain and his best stuff, you really have to dig deeper. And of course, it also shows that although yeah. Huck is taking steps forward, it's not far enough yet. And that's Twain's whole point, I believe, in that scene. I live in Montgomery, Alabama, as I've said many a times, and there is a publisher here that I have worked with and many of my students intern with them called New South Books, wonderful people. Ten years ago, they published a version of Huckleberry Finn that was edited by a professor that lives here in town, very well-known Twain scholar named Alan Gribben. And that was an edition that took out the N-word out of the novel, replaced it at different points with slave and was not the first to do so. But it received a tremendous amount of publicity, but it created a lot of controversy. Are we boulderizing literature because we lack the sensitivity to historicize it? Or are we perpetuating some kind of trauma for African-American students? It's, a, it's, it's an unanswerable question. At the end of the day, I think for teachers, we individually have to come to grips with it. I, I mentioned in our Toni Morrison episode that I had just had an incident this fall where a, one of my faculty was teaching this book and made the choice to say the N-word in class, and we had several complaints about it. I personally, when I teach, I fumble around and I will say the N-word or I will say epithet deleted. I don't want to say that word in, in, in any company. Even if, I'm, even if I'm reading a text, it's just too loaded. There was a time where our popular culture, Patti Smith, could have a song called Rock and Roll N-Word. Right. And she doesn't perform that song any, anymore because her son says that that word is just too lethal right now. It is. And of course, and it's very controversial. You know, everyone's heard some discussion about the rap and hip hop artist approbation of the word. And the excuse given is where we're slightly changing the pronunciation. Um, I, I think it's more, but we are in a society that is so fraught with our inability to communicate with each other across racial, class, gender boundaries and lines that civility and sensitivity are have to be privileged above many other things. So that's the case where, you know, I don't have a problem with this not being taught in high school because I worry about high school kids being mature enough, high school teachers being skillful enough. And even when I teach it, I give trigger warnings and I allow students who feel they'll be so offended by the use of the word to read other great novels of yeah. American realism. On the topic moving forward of American realism, he starts this book with a notice and a warning. The notice is, 
that unlike certain other writers, he doesn't put it this way, but this is what he means, not to mention Harriet uh, Beecher Stowe by name, Twain grew up among Black Americans. He knew them. He had worked with them and knew how they spoke and how they sounded. He'd also traveled up and down the Mississippi River, so he knew different dialects from all over. And this novel, very much like Their Eyes Watching God, which comes out 60-something years later, does with Jim's speech and somewhat with Huck's speech use vernacular and phonetical rendering of Southern poor white and black dialects. Mm -hmm. And so he's very much taking a claim into tradition that he'd been working in along with George Washington Cable and others of local color writing, which is people in certain regions of the country, whether it's Louisiana or Mississippi or Maine or, or wherever, have a certain dialect, a certain way they speak that is not the approved Walter Cronkite, Tom Brokaw, universal Midwestern anchor speak. And how successful that is, I don't know. I still kind of wish he had not gone so heavily with Jim's right. dialect and trying to render it what he thought was realistic. And even some of the things he does of Huck, you think phonetically that accomplishes nothing. That's how people really say it. So, and of course, with Huck, you don't know when it's a misspelling or when it's phonetical as well, because Huck's literally telling us he's writing the book. Then there's also the warning. He says, don't look for moral yeah. in this book. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot, or perhaps I reverse those. But what do you think of that moral? There's a term that in literary criticism we throw around about the effect that these sorts of packaging types of devices, like a preface or something is supposed to have on us. We call it paratextual device because it creates a framework for how we explain it. I think that particular moral, is, it's deeply ironic. It's a bit of a thumb to the nose of the, of the stuffed shirts that are looking yes. for any sort of deeper meaning. It's not like, again, a rock star coming out and saying it's only rock and roll. Nothing is only. It is a cultural product. It has significance. But what I think that does, that type of moral, it's again, it adds right. a little humor to it. Exactly. But it's also a way of saying to the reader, are you sophisticated enough in irony to understand what's going on here? That's exactly it. It's like a it's almost like a five-year-old who uses reverse psychology and says, better not chase me. And of course, oh, you want me to chase yeah. you. And yeah. The term you've used a few times that is so important is irony and ironic mode. The whole novel is the ironic mode. So as Huck and Jim travel together, Huck is often lecturing Jim. And the joke is Huck's got everything wrong. Right. And Jim is one of those rare people who has the ability to admit when he doesn't know something instead of faking it. Unlike, let's say, many people being educated in America's great pillars of higher education right now. Um, he'll admit when he doesn't know something and when he doesn't understand something. And Huck can't do that. Huck just wings it, makes stuff up, thinking yeah. he's got it right and that he's so much smarter than Jim. Of course, the joke is often on Huck because Jim understands more about the realities of it sometimes than Huck does. And so that ironic mode of discourse is incredibly important throughout the book. I think one of the things the novel does as well is that because we see Jim through Huck's eyes, we, in a sense, have to always question that depiction of Jim right. and sort of see around Huck's blind spots, which is, again, it's a point of view type of irony. Exactly. That's very typical in novels with young protagonists. Exactly. He's, he's an unreliable narrator, not because he lies to us, but because he's ignorant right. of, of the realities or how things really work and so yeah. on. 
The other thing you said earlier that I think is incredibly key to understanding the novel is that we could say that the action of the novel reflects the theme of the novel in a way that throughout the history of literature, journey novels do. Exterior travel, exterior journey, going all the way back to the Odyssey, the first complete work in the Western tradition we know of, that exterior journey or travel reflects an interior change in journey. So in the novel, they travel from lower Missouri down to not far away from New Orleans. And yet in side, Huck has to struggle to take two or three steps forward, although we have a good indication at the end of the novel that he's going to keep moving in the right way. And I I would say, uh, this is a little bit out of context, Twain will eventually go back to the well and publish some sequels to this with Tom and Huck adventuring again. None of them are written at this level or this level of challenging. I would say don't read this book in the context of those books. Read it. I agree. Read it by itself. It really, those books belong in a context with the adventures of Tom Sawyer. This book needs to be read by itself. And if you want to read another Twain novel you put in context with this, it'd be uh, Puddinghead Wilson. I'm glad you brought up the journey because that goes right along with the idea of what you were saying about regional literature. And kind of the opposite of that is our idea of what is a national literature that somehow encompasses some expanse of the continent. And one way to measure the influence of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is the idea that there would be no on the road or any other type of of novel that is about travel. No sun also rises, if you want to say it that way, without this idea that putting yourself in different geographical environments is a is a is a form of moral or intellectual development. And uh, the the question for me comes at the end of the novel, when everything is wrapped up with a bow and Jim is free, and we discover that uh, Tom recuperates from the gunshot that comes about when he's pulling his final prank, where Huckleberry Finn says, I can't take civilization, so I'm heading out for the territory. And the question of that is, brings up a very challenging issue for literary critics, which is, is our national investment in individuality a sign of our cultural immaturity? Now, there's a very famous critic who wrote probably the most famous piece on adventures of Huckleberry Finn named Leslie Fiedler, very controversial essay. It's called Come Back to the Raft, Huck Honey, in which he argues that one signature of the immaturity of American intellectualism is the fact that all of our novels are about men escaping the responsibilities of marriage and family and profession and escaping into the wilderness Mm. uh, to be with other men. And he kind of deconstructs all the great buddy pairs in American literary history from James Fenimore Cooper on through this. And there is some sort of truth to that. It may be overstated, Absolutely. I think it's his danger when you have a Freudian critic, as Fiedler was, that part of the danger is that you could really not only apply Freudian, you know, apply Freudian criticism broadly to any given text, you can also apply it broadly to the critic, which is, so why are you looking for this? What does it say about yeah. you that you would like yeah. to see this in the, so for instance, he describes that those male relationships as homoerotic, and he goes so far as to argue that the relationship between uh, Huck and Jim has sexual overtones because of he takes, you know, he doesn't really do his research. He doesn't look at the language yeah. of 
how uh, uh, black people who are enslaved at that time spoke to uh, children. He doesn't look. And he also doesn't address the issue that he's taking Jim, who's really portrayed as the most heroic character in the novel, as a pedophile. If you really take a step back and think of a man in his late 30s sexualizing a 13-year-old boy. I don't think you can read the book and go halfway on that subject. You either have to deal with it full-fledged or not. On the other hand, he's completely right in that there is this trope of the homosocial men fleeing domesticity to go out. But of course, it's not an American notion. It's, it's the Odyssey. It's the uh, Aeneid. It's Beowulf. It is the King Arthur tells where Lancelot screws everything up. And, the, and the, you know, the guy who gets married, has his, his wife cheats on him with his best friend. So he goes off and has a series of adventures. Uh, we have it over and over again. And I think what you see with Twain employing it is he's localizing it into American realism. So we go through, you and I spend a lot of time explaining how in Moby Dick, there are all these secret codes for his problems with slavery and colonialism and the state of America in 1850. But he never once comes out and says slavery is wrong. Nathaniel Hawthorne, card-carrying abolitionist, works for uh, politicians trying to end it. Never much seriously addresses slavery in his writing. And here, so here with Twain, of course, he has the value of coming 20, 30 years down the line from those guys. With Twain and American realism, what distinguishes American realism, it it is finally dealing post-Civil War and really at the time Civil War with societal issues. You got classism and uh, sexism being dealt with by Henry James. You got William Dean Howells dealing with the, the class system in a way showing his influence by the British writers doing the same thing. And then you got Twain who makes it, you know, a lot of people said this novel doesn't do a good job showing the horrors of slavery. Well, it's not about slavery. It's about racism. Slavery is uh, dead and gone by the time in America, by the time Twain is writing yeah. this novel, but what's behind American slavery, as opposed to that kind perpetrated by Native American tribes or in, in south of the border in Latin America or in Europe, what's really, you cannot discuss American slavery and not discuss racism because it is interwoven in the DNA. And so I think a lot of what Fiedler talks about is incredibly useful in that book. But I think like many works of criticism that wear a theoretical bent on their sleeve, you have to have a certain filter in place and, and discern between the good and the bad with that. Um, one of the things it does is it puts the notion of a Bildungsroman into context because the Bildungsroman is, the, is our Germanic by way of French uh, phrase that means a, you know, a tale of a coming of age. We've discussed it in earlier novels. And the classic Bildungsroman is a young man sets out on a series of trials and he's guided by adult mentor figures. And in this case, he has one mentor whose society says cannot be a mentor which is a runaway slave who has no education at all. And yet, of course, Jim is a fascinating character because every other adult figure in this novel, Mm -hmm. I would argue, Kurt, is a failure. Even when they're trying to legitimately support Huck, they always represent some failing part of American Southern society, whereas Jim is the only one who passes every moral test in the book. One of the things you realize reading the encounters is just how many criminals 
are in this book and the, the Duke and the Dauphine are maybe the most obvious, but you also get into the whole pseudo Hatfield and McCoy conflict right. between the Grangerfords and the Shepherdsons, which is a, a hilarious yes. depiction of familial pride, but also just to take it back to the uh, vernacular issue, there's a, there's a hilarious moment when Huck is with that family where he's introduced to the awful, awful poetry of Emmalina Grangerford. Just to give the reader a flavor of this, of course, she herself has died, but when she was alive, she wrote these encomium. They're always eulogies for yeah, eulogies. people who've, who've died. Yeah. So this is Ode to Stephen Dowling Bott's Deceased. Deceased. <laughs> and did young Stephen sicken? And did young Stephen die? And did sad hearts thicken and the mourners cry? No, such was not the fate of young Stephen Dowling Botts. Those sad hearts round him thicken. Twas not from sickness's shots. This was American poetry in this period of time. Right. And Emmalina dies because she was working on a rhyme and couldn't come up to rhyme for the name, I think, Whistler, and gets sick and dies. And they said, otherwise, it was the Undertaker first and Emmalina right beside him, you know, for the poems. Later, when the, when the con men are trying to take the money from the girls who are left bereft and they're coming in and they're pretending to be a long gone English uncles, uh, and Huck has to pretend to be an English servant. And he's sitting there and he goes, are you sure? And he goes, oh, yeah. And he's lying. He goes, yeah. you know, what does your what does your uncle do? Well, he doesn't do nothing. His laws around. Well, how many? I thought he'd be in the pulpit because he's supposed to be a preacher. He goes, "What preach for a king? Then he don't need no less than seventeen of them." And you know, just a lying. It, it it is a very humorous novel, disguising the serious stuff right underneath. And the other adult figures we have the widow and Miss Watson. Yeah, they love Huck, but they don't love him. They they want to turn him into a respectable member of society. They cannot accept him with his background is upbringing. Pat Finn is a flat out child abuser, points loaded gun uh, and, and knocks his kid unconscious at one point. He, um, the judges are more hampered by legality than morality. And it's a little game that Twain plays with you constantly. When should we? Very much he's influenced in no way seeming like he's got any transcendentalism in him. There's still a lot of Thoreau and Emerson are we going to follow God's law? Are we going to follow the eternal laws in our heart? It's kind of humanistic interior, or are we going to follow, you know, man's law, which is just wrong. And Huck as a 13 year old cannot distinguish, the, you know, an uneducated, poorly read 13 year old really cannot distinguish between those two ideas. Whereas he expects the adults who are reading this book to be able to make that distinction in a way that so many people during the 19th century, when they're told, Oh, it's okay to do this because white people aren't the same as us. It's okay to have slaves to do it. They just accepted yeah. it. They didn't see the religious hypocrisy, you know, that we see. And the other, of course, the King and the Duke, Shepherds and Grangerfords, a big part of what he's doing there is savaging the idea of aristocracy and that the divine has placed one people in charge of another. And what he tells you is slavery is the natural outcome of that outlook, that one person is granted by a creator to be better than another right. human. And the flip side of that is the extremes to which he takes the idea of disguise and assuming identities. Uh, so much of this novel is about performance. I mean, at one point, Huck dresses up as a girl 
Right. When they think that he is deceased or has been murdered. And it's clear throughout that particular scene that he is probably the fakest female. The worst girl. The woman's laughing at him as she's you know, challenging him. One of the, the more interesting themes I think he takes in there is to what degree is our identity defined by the limits society imposes upon us with what we're born into. He's fascinated that his whole career. I mean, Prince and the Popper, uh, yeah, uh, identical doubles. Puddinghead Wilson about mm-hmm. you know uh, siblings separated at birth and going you know crisscrossing paths and um, yeah. uh, over and over again he's he's just fascinated with the notion of putting on these veneers and disguises and assuming alternate identities and the whole idea of living in the public eye with people referring to you by a, a stage name, but knowing your real name at the same time. Right. And this this whole idea of what's the relationship between Samuel Clemens and, and Mark Tain. Right. That's, that's a great way to put it. It reminds you of that Orwell term he uses in uh, Shooting an Elephant, where he says, if you act as if you wear a mask long enough, your face grows to fit the mask. Right, right. You're talking about playing a uh, the impeccable, totally imperturbable British symbol of British authority in Burma at that time. Yeah. The novel's sophisticated in other ways that we won't go into detail a lot. For instance, although Twain himself, as you would expect from someone is pretty skeptical from someone like him is pretty skeptical about religion. He makes great use of religious symbolism throughout the novel, all these Moses references. And that, and I bring that one up. And of course, it's mm-hmm. the, when he fakes his death, he goes down to the river. So it's his baptism sequence. He travels along the river, just like Moses in the laying in a basket. And he tells a couple of jokes or he's told a joke that he doesn't get about Moses in the novel. And I, I want to mention that one because I think it's going to come back in my defense at the end of the book here in a little bit. But let's talk about there's two climaxes. There's the, the true climax of the novel, which you referenced earlier. And then there's a second one, which everyone talks about. So in Green Hills of Africa, a maybe somewhat underrated, also ironic book by Hemingway. Hemingway wrote all modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn, or we'd say Adventures Huckleberry Finn. And American writing comes from that. There's nothing before. There's been nothing good since. And I think there's two things we can talk about that. One is voice. When you read First Person Narrative by Poe, the characters all sound like Poe. We read it by Hawthorne. They all sound like Hawthorne. Melville works with it a bit, but I would argue Ishmael's voice and Melville's voice, other than the occasional ain't, are still pretty close. And you and you see where Dickens, on the one hand, will have people speak in these broad Cockney accents and do all this kind of interesting stuff with his characters, but his narrators still kind of sound a lot like Charles Dickens. No one reads this book and thinks as they're reading it that this is a 13-year-old boy being told by a man in his late 40s. Instead, as you read it, you feel like you're reading a book being told to you by a 13-year-old kid from exactly this background. It is an immersive voice. It, it, it cracks. It, it, it holds up well. It, you know, it just has a snap to it. Yeah. And I think it changes first-person writing forever. I don't think you have... And we'll talk at the end when we talk about cannon fodder, how influential the novel is. But I think that's half of what we're talking about, where American literature comes from it. And the other one, of course, is that section, you know, the, the all good writing comes from it. And you reference, all right, then I'll go to hell. And it's where Jim's been recaptured and Huck knows, well, he is a runaway slave. And I probably just need to let him be 
turned in because if we just do that, I can send a letter. He'll go back home. That's where his family is. And then everything will be fine. And, but then of course, if I do that, everyone will know I was an abolitionist and that's about the worst thing you can be morally. And then finally he's, so he's debating with himself and how he's got to tell on Jim. He's going to write this letter and send it home. And, and maybe that'll do the thing. And they'll still be able to, uh, even though he's been trying to be a bad person, he'll admit he's been an abolitionist and that's horrible and disreputable. It's like being a rapist or a terrorist or something is how bad it is. And really how it feels that way. And now he sees a letter just as he's about to decide he's not going to have anything to do with helping Jim and send the letter. And he says this, it was a close place. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a trembling because I got to decide forever betwixt two things. And I noted. it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath and says to myself, all right, then I'll go to hell and tore it up. And that is, I believe it is truly a moral climax novel. I think it is a place where we define in American realism in this, you know, epic work of American realism. What does it mean to be truly American? It means you're willing to question authority. You're willing to go against society, not accept what society has told you and to know your place and then never rock the boat or shake the tree, but to actually say, let's not do what we've been told right. Let's do what is right. And I'm not saying that in the United States, we as a culture, certainly not as a government or a society, have lived up to that, but we want to live up to it in a way that until we set a certain example, maybe many other cultures are not so willing to, to say this or challenge it. You cannot really find right. this scene happening much in any many other world literatures at this time. It's a pretty unique change uh, to the way things are done. And so this is, I think, why Hemingway and other people talk about the novel is where American literature truly starts. Because as, as good as Whitman is, I don't know, Whitman I put in a separate category, but as good as so many of our novelists are and writers are, Hawthorne and Poe and even Melville, they're still kind of doing what Europeans have always done, just they're showing they do it as well as Europeans. Right. This is essentially American in every way, in, in cadence, in voice. And it's that the promise of the Emersonian notion of be the individual, be self-reliant, go against the flow. Uh, it, it's made fruition in a way. Now, again, I'm not saying that the American reality is that, but it's, and of course, it's become the cliche. Now the hero, the cop who's told, step down, there's pressure from City Hall, don't investigate it. Well, of course, he's going to investigate it. It, you know, and uh, yeah. the guy in Lethal Weapon, you know, he's, he's he's a rebel, you know, of course he's that guy because that becomes a cliche, but it starts with something greater than cliche, I guess is what I'd say. I was just going to flip the script and you've just done it. We celebrate those when they appeal to our politics. The flip side of that is it's, a, it's essentially a dialectic in America. You are an individual, but you are also a representative of a democracy, a, of a larger community. And I think sometimes we allow our sense of American individuality to extend a little too far, maybe into the libertarian extreme. Imagine for a moment that Huck Finn was not about slavery or about racism, but it was about public health and about vaccination. And, and what Huck Finn was standing up against was the mandate to, we probably see it a little bit differently. So we want to applaud it on one hand, but we also want to recognize, as you say, that there are limits to that 
it can create a kind of moral solipsism where, right. you know, the rebel rebels for the sake of, of maintaining that purity. Good point. And in many ways, I think that's what happened to the Beats, the Beat generation. Very true. Who are descendants of Twain, both stylistically and plot-wise in terms of these adventures. But, you know, that, that rebellion gave them absolutely nowhere to go except full circle for Jack Kerouac sure. into a kind of pugnacious conservatism where right. he was like dismissing hippies left and right because what else could he do? Well, there's a self-indulgence to always being the rebel. Yeah. Especially when the rebel is a trust fund kid mm-hmm. who's got an incredibly expensive Ivy League or, or you know West Coast Ivy League education and right. is trying to portray themselves as you know, there is a difference with the the 13-year-old kid on his own who's been living on his own homeless for off and on for a few years, yeah. fleeing an abusive dad uh, and going against unjust, corrupt society, as opposed to the kid who moves to Los Angeles in 1999 from Washington State and thinks he's been done wrong because no one's bought his self-created punk rock CD. I guess uh, I always put it in very immediate context to my own situation where I think of that sort of, all right, then I'll go to hell. I can't tell you how many conflicts I've had with faculty that I, part of my job is to manage and they don't want to be told these are the rules of your job. You have to return emails or you have to have office hours or you have to do this. And it's funny to be put in the position of being the company man who's having to enforce the rules in part because I become the complaint department if I don't. Oh, absolutely. Well, and also because the the duty we're here for is not to protect our colleagues having a good time, but to make sure we're doing right by our students too, right? If I had told you, I grab you in graduate school when you're 25 and we have a really great discussion over music for a while, a couple of drinks. And then I say to you, Kirk, you're probably going to be a department chair one day at a relatively, you know, uh, prosperous Southern University. Uh, would you have ever believed that? Well, I was so broke in graduate school. I probably would have liked to have believed it just for the, <laughs> just for the financial security, never having, never having discovered $6,000 as a reward for turning in bank robbers before. No. And that's in 1840s yeah. dollars. How yeah. much is that? And of course it's interesting because that's the amount of money those con men are dying to take off the family of girls. The Wilkes family. And Huck has no problem thwarting them, which is kind of one of his first moral decisions he makes in the book. And he also has no trouble leaving his money behind. So let's talk about that ending. So we have a novel which has, because the, the tone is humorous and satirical and ironic, I think dampens a lot of the violence that is in this book. There's a lot of gore. There are dead bodies all over yes. the place. The Duke and the Dauphine are tarred and feathered, which is not a pleasant experience. We have corpses. We have. We get to the end, and rather than just pull Jim out of this situation, which uh, Huck and Tom could have done, Tom devises all these elaborate pranks that in effect torture Jim. Yeah. Uses him as a living action figure. Right, right. So this is the kid who didn't respect his Superman doll, but would throw him you know, into the wall and see if he's really indestructible and so on. Yeah. So when I asked my students, why do you think people didn't like the end of the novel? They go, well, because in the spoiler alert on the, you know, this... This 140-something-year-old novel, by the way, and I, obviously all our podcasts have spoilers, but 
that he travels the entire length of the river and ends up at the one farm in North America expecting the one guy who could actually do a good job impersonating <laughs> in terms of knowing all the same people yeah. and knowing the family members and knowing how they were doing when he saw them last and all that. So that coincidence is what they think of. And that's why I always give them my anecdote about being with a couple of college buddies touring around in British Isles after uh, we graduate our master's degrees and we come into a subway tunnel in London. And one of my friends says, oh, I'm going to pretend to be British for a second. And this is about like Huck Finn pretending to be British. And he goes up and he says, oh, I can tell you're having a hard time with the map. You need help. You know, and if you don't know how to follow a subway map and you're trying to use roadmap rules, they don't make sense, I guess. And then he kind of says, oh, I recognize your accent. And he eventually teases out of her. He knows right where she's from. And it turns out she had taught him freshman English at Tallahassee Community College. And there we had traveled all the way across the, the globe and he runs in his freshman <laughs> teacher. So coincidences do happen and they're very commonplace part of plotting That's funny. 19th century novels. They're throughout Dickens, they're throughout uh, Jane Austen and, and the Brontes and of course throughout Twain's works. So the critics were not that, but of course, what people think is Jim should have died and that would show you how much slavery was bad. And here's why I disagree. First is people don't understand the symbolic role of Tom Sawyer in the novel. Yeah. And our first question is, why is Huck able to break away from society and go off of Jim? Well, if you write out Huck's characteristics on the novel, uh, more or less an orphan and isolated from his family, poor education, no religious education or understanding religion, although culturally he might consider himself religious, no understanding of money, not able to follow rules in society. Most of those also apply to Jim. So Huck is positioned from the very beginning of the novel as an outsider. And, uh, it, you know, he's superstitious, all these things. And you see these parallel moments between Huck and Jim continuously in the novel. Now, we also see Jim counterposed against the supposedly superior white people. So Jim, it will do anything to save his wife and kids. Jim, even as everyone else, you know, Huck's father is beating him unconscious or trying to take for his last $2 so he go get drunk. Jim can't sleep at night thinking about one time he inadvertently punished his daughter when he shouldn't have. Jim stays up worrying about his family and worrying about Huck. All these counterposed. And so the first hurdle Huck, has to face is learning how to respect Jim. And it doesn't really happen until Jim demands it of Huck. And at that moment, of course, is the night they miss Cairo. So there are all these Moses right. references and the place that Jim can go to, to be free that he misses because Huck gets lost for a while is Cairo, Illinois, which of course evokes to his Cairo, Egypt. And we think, well, traveling back into Egypt, why would Jim be free? Well, Jim would have been free, but Huck would not be free. Tom Sawyer, on the other hand, is the insider. He is the, the guy who works with Enron, yeah. whose best friend is the vice president of the United States, who costs the country billions of dollars and millions and millions of dollars. And it takes him five years. Uh, I think Lay was the guy's name. It takes five years to build a case against him. And then the night before they go to get him, he dies mysteriously. And an autopsy never happens, and the body's incinerated without an autopsy. So the family, I guess, is, doesn't have insurance problems. <laughs> and again, you know, Kirk, if you and I go over to the 7-Eleven and rip off a thirst buster and a bag of Cheetos, they catch us within 10 minutes, and we're in jail because we lack good contacts. But if your best friend's the vice president of the United States at that time, then it takes a really long time, although, it's, you know, <laughs> billions of dollars 
yeah. injury done to the United States economy and people's pensions. And he personally stole millions of dollars because he's a society insider like Tom. Tom lies, he cheats, he steals, he does people wrong, he uses people, and he gets rewarded for it. Huck, on the other hand, is an outsider, and it's all different for him. And it's okay when he goes along. So Tom has no respect for Jim, and he treats him like an action figure. And so at the end, when Tom's been shot in the leg, and he's all, we've got him out of here, we can get away. And of course, he gets shot because Tom's warned him, and they're all looking for Tom. He's representing society. And even when Huck tells him, I'm going to free Jim, Ole Miss Watson's Jim, Tom starts to say Jim is free, but he won't do it. And so Tom is only, as a representative of society, only serves an impediment at the end. Whereas Huck, who's learned to respect Jim more, he still cares too much what society thinks. And he goes along with Tom, as he always has. Right. But at the end, when Tom says, take the river, Huck says, he doesn't say, this is what we'll do. He'll say, say it, Jim. It's Jim's right to decide. And it shows both his respect for Jim that it's Jim's decision. But also his faith in Jim. Jim's the only character in the novel who always makes the right moral decision. Now, there's, there's problems with how that section's written. And it, it, he says it in kind of racist way. He says, I know it is wide inside, but I figured he'd say what he would say. Well, that is a racist statement. There's no doubt. But of course, in Huck speak, he's kind of saying, I knew we were the same inside. I knew that the race didn't matter. That, that line is the flip side of our slang term. That's mighty white of you. I mean, there's... Yeah. And I think that's placed in there specifically as another ironic moment where, I mean, one of the challenges of this whole novel, and this is very true of first person narratives, is you have to struggle to separate the character from the author and not fall into thinking that the uh, character is a spokesman for the author. That's right. So I think that in, in many of these moments that Twain is, is, is creating, somebody who's in the process of being educated. That's, a, that's right. It's a process. That's exactly right. He's not arrived. He's on the journey. And in the end of the novel, he's got to light out for the territories because, yeah. you know, Aunt Sally, she's going to adopt me and civilize me. And I can't stand it. I've been there before. Well, civilized brought back into society. Society's corrupt. And, and he's letting us know that Huck is just starting. He doesn't understand the importance of that person who died in a bowler accident. And he's learned his, he only cares about Jim. He hasn't learned to see everyone the way he sees Jim, or at least give him the chance to be seen that way. And he's got a long ways to go. And he makes it very clear. So the novel is not about Huck freeing Jim. It is about Jim freeing Huck. Huck is a person who's enslaved by society, by his environmental conditioning, by the blinders he wears. And it is Jim as a moral mentor figure, a moral compass for Huck that changes that. That's a great way of putting it. I honestly don't think anybody could ever question the ending after that excellent, excellent defense of it that you've just given. That's very thorough and persuasive. I've wrestled with the novel for years, and it, I'll, I'll say while acknowledging its many blemishes that reflect the blemishes that were truly part of America's character at the time he writes this, um, it is one of my favorite books because of its ability to operate successfully as a comedy. And the other thing, if we remove what it's about, and it's about vaccines or, or whatever instead, and this would be, say, a smallpox vaccine, and this is how they eradicate smallpox because they didn't actually give you a choice in many places about that. Mm -hmm. If just from an art standpoint, can you have something following a comedic arc the entire time and pivot into tragedy at the very end and have it? 
succeed and be respected down the line as a work of art. I think we usually require foreshadowing and I think the mood has to fit. I think an unhappy ending has to be earned just like a happy ending has to be earned. And we all know that films we've seen with happy endings that felt forced and fake, and it probably wasn't the original script. It probably was added in by the studio during reviews and after test screenings and so on. Yeah. Famously, there's a, a sequence at the end of Blade Runner where they're driving in sunlight up to the frozen north to get away that was kind of added in at the last minute due to test screenings. Or Pretty Woman that originally ended on a much darker note, and they came back and said, you know what? Prostitutes can end up in a happy marriage. They can be Cinderella too. Exactly. So what do you think? Would it would we still be reading this novel in anthologies? And would it have would we have a Mark Twain journal? Would we have this book be taught and read and all the controversy if it ends on a just pure tragedy? No, I think you're exactly right. There's no way to end it on a note where anything happens to Jim other than his freedom. I think that if that were to happen, it would just so totally change everything that came before it. And it would almost overemphasize the idea that Huck is complicit, which he is. But the idea is that Huck can educate himself to resist the system as opposed to be sort of an unwilling perpetuator uh, or to put it in terms today that he can educate himself to be an ally. Uh, of Jim. Right. I think the question that many black writers would ask is why does this novel have to be told from Huck's point of view? Why can't it be told from Jim's point of view? And we should mention that there are right. novels out there that do revise the story. And that's that's one of the signs of a great American novel is people tell the story from different angles. So there's at least one novel I know of out there that's told from Jim's perspective of this relationship. But there's also an interesting one that's told from the perspective of Jim's wife. And that's another way that people kind of recalibrate these stories. Right. And there's a a Pat Finn novel. Yeah. Told from the father's perspective. Yeah. And there are some significant issues with that one where it makes you wonder if he, how closely he read, you know, Twain's book. Uh, And of course, if he had written it from the slave's point of view, we would also be asking ourselves about cultural appropriation. So you kind of, as an artist, you get it from the front or the back or the side, you know, it's really impossible to, anytime you tackle something like this. Well, that's when it's best, because honestly, if you get unmitigated praise, you're probably, you're probably too easily consumed. And it'll go away like a great one hit wonder. Yeah. Oh, we all loved it. And you put on your mixtape and then later you're thinking, you know, I don't know that I need to hear that song that many times. One, one thing I would say is that the, the complexity and the richness of it is one, one of the reasons that people can come in and revise it. I don't, I, I am not aware, and I don't think you could do this with that type of revision with uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin and not, no. not totally have to distance yourself from your source material. Yeah. So that, that, may, that may be a sign of, although I am not someone who... N- condemns uncle tom's cabin outright but that book is very problematic and yeah. in a lot of ways um and maybe, maybe I, I think more so than this yeah, one yeah. and it definitely wears its heart on sleeve against slavery but it's a lot more complicated regarding race in in a way than this one and is. in fact the interest one of the interesting bits of trivia surrounding that book is that um you mentioned the racial epithet sambo that based on that figure 
Stowe was, that was the novel that publicized that term. One of the unexpected consequences of its popularity is, is people began more and more referring to, in that period, African-Americans as Sambo. Just a little bit of trivia there for you. Kirk Dewey agreed that it's a great American novel. I think you just gave a very good explanation first in complexity and on depth, uh, heft, scope. It's not one of the longer novels. It's probably with like uh, The Great Gatsby and Their Eyes Watching God, maybe a little longer than those. But do you feel it has, I, I feel it has sufficient complexity and depth, despite not being, you know, yeah, uh, able to lock your doors officially during a hurricane. It's clearly it's American and it, it is about some of the most Central American themes. And, and, and literally it's Central American with the idea of the Mississippi River as a sort of metaphor yeah. for the history of the country. And I think one of the, you know, one of the big emblems in the book is, is the river and the whole notion of what that yes. signifies in terms of both westward expansion, but also the, the, the conflict between the North and the South. Right. I don't think there's anybody that would argue that this is not a great American novel. It's just uh, the influence right. is so extensive. And as you say, there are so many layers to it that make it endlessly interpretable. The fact that it can take an issue that is deeply tragic and yet make it treat it comically. The, the fact that we take a form, the picaresque, and yet we add some sort of moral growth to it, which is very unusual in that type of in that type of format. So, well, until this time, it was unusual. But Twain basically gave people a way to take the picaresque form into, without the sort of uh, teleological imposition of an ending that often happens in novels of development, where you kind of have to find some way to uh, stamp adulthood onto a character. This one allows for a, I think, a more realistic growth in the idea that moral development is always in a stage. There's always moral evolution. We never there. And that's one of the things that the Bill Dung's Roman, I think, falsely claims is, oh, you're an adult. Story's over. The plot is resolved. One of the interesting questions you can ask about Huckleberry Finn is where is he at 35 or 40? You know, where is he later in life? And again, don't don't read the other sequels yeah. because they've yeah. got it wrong. But on this one, yeah. where is he? And I think that's a good question. And that moves us into we're doing cannon fodder a little differently this time. Normally we pick one book that we do a cannon fodder, a cannon buster, a book that's worthy of canonization that maybe has escaped people's attention or one that is probably not as important in the higher ranks of the canon and could probably be demoted a little bit. This time, our approach will be, let's think about all the books that many of us have read that owe a debt, even if it's not understood, to Huckleberry Finn, because we're thinking of what you just said about how the picaresque of Building Sherman becomes this more insightful more interesting, more open literary novel. We're thinking about voice. We're thinking about the uh, incredible, you know, um, snap and creativity of a first person voice that draws you in and won't let go of you. And, you know, some of the the books I've come up with right off the top of my head and, and join in wherever you want, Kirk, but you don't have The Catcher in a Rye without this book. You don't have On the Road. We are talking about novels that use first person point of view from the perspective of either a child or a young adult. And right. now again, Leslie Fiedler in the 1950s has some pretty interesting essays about sort of resisting this 
tendency to ennoble children. You know, you can be like Whitney Houston and believe the children are the future, but American culture has tended to glorify <laughs> childhood and adolescence uh, in part because of these types of narratives that want to see young people as having not yet been socialized out of their innate goodness, which is a romantic notion, but it finds deep, deep anchorage here in America because of our belief in natural individuality or so other books we could add to this, To Kill a Mockingbird doesn't exist without this, Adventures of Augie March by Bellow without this, Jessamyn Ward's Sing, Unburied Sing, a more recent novel, Carson McCullers' The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Ellen Foster by Kay Gibbons, Bastard Out Carolina by Dorothy Allison, Separate Piece by John Knowles, Rule of the Bone by Banks, uh, Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, uh, recent kind of adolescent lit uh, writer uh, John Green's novels like Looking for Alaska and Paper Towns, all of a debt. And if we even think of like the humor and the first person narrative, you've really got to throw in Flannery O'Connor, who's not doing the buildings from on and picaresque mm -hmm. with her short fiction. And you got to put in a lot of Eudora Welty as well. I don't think we see any of these writers yeah. working in the way they do. And you mentioned Hemingway earlier, and we could add, we, we could go on with this list. I don't think there are a lot of authors where you could just go on and on and on and say, this one book has kind of made the rest of these possible. The quickest way to find it is you look at the blurbs on the back of the book and inevitably they're described as a female Huckleberry Finn or a black Huckleberry Finn or right. whatever adjective kind of localizes the, the narrative. But it really is an, an appealingly American type of perspective. And again, the idea is that the I is, is the individual outside of society, but the moral growth becomes a way of right. negotiating that dialectic and that responsibility to change society itself down the road. So Kirk, our next novel is? Our next novel is also a journey novel. We are going to go across the ocean, however, and we're going to ask, can a great American novel take place somewhere other than America? And so we are going to get our baguettes and go loiter at the cafes. <laughs> uh, and we are going to talk about Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. Thank you for listening to the Great American Novel Podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And if you're so inclined, please leave a review. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others such as Master of the Forty with Kirk and Robert Trogdon, focusing on the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Rita McCarthy with myself and various guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. And you can also email us at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. We would love, again, if you would uh, rate us, as Scott says, and help boost our visibility a little bit. Until then, we shall see you on the streets of Montparnasse. Thanks for listening.